more books translated to Spanish in one year than Arabic in 1,000 years. Actually, all of them live in war zones. And in some cases, it's like somebody tells me, well, my house was blown up. I couldn't finish the article. Wow. The, the teachers were in a way like forcing us to come, even though we had to walk on dead bodies to go to school. So the mission is making the inaccessible accessible. With the people I work with, and I hear some of their inspirational stories, it's like, like I'm addicted to inspiration in a way. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I've got to tell you, this is an absolute honor to welcome to the unstoppable uh, Faisal Saeed Al-Matar. Man, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, having me. When I found out about you, when I found out about your story, yeah, it was actually, it was quite, it was not only compelling, but I found it also emotional because being a family guy myself, um, yeah, I, I, I put myself in your shoes and thought, wow, what an incredible way to grow up. Uh, and also what an incredible mission to inspire as a result of the way that you grew up. So I'm gonna think it's probably fair to assume that a lot of our audience probably don't even know who you are. Um, so why don't you give us a very short rundown before we dive into your story about, you know, who's, uh, who's Faisal? Like, and, and, and how did we get here in a nutshell? Um, well, thank you first again for having me. Pleasure. Um, I mean, my, my upbringing is actually divided to, I would say like multiple chapters in my life. Yeah, okay. And the, the first chapter is when I was born in Babylon. So I was born, born in Babylon, Iraq. Right. Uh, close to, I'm sure many of your audience know that part, the, the yeah. historical uh, town. And my parents both happened to study in the UK. Uh, my dad is an orthopedic surgeon, my mom is a lawyer. So we fit kind of the stereotypical Asian family in that yeah. regard. Um, so that's why I swear the first chapter of my life, which is uh, we were surrounded by cousins and family, and we had talk about family uh, atmosphere. That was yeah. the case. Then my dad got a job at the capital city in Baghdad, and then we moved uh, in a kind of a residential neighborhood that many of the people who used to live there were some of Saddam Hussein's generals. Right. And the reason that this is important is because of the third chapter. Okay. Um, so that was kind of the second chapter of my life, which is moving to a big city in which kind of like tribe and last name doesn't matter as much compared to the small town we come from. Right. And then the Iraq war happened. That was in 2003. So I was born in 1991. So I moved wow. to Baghdad in 2003. Uh, so I moved, the Iraq war happened in 2003. So 12 years, um, 11 years. Uh, yeah, 12 years. Yeah, I got my math wrong. And um, so the neighborhood that used to be surrounded by a lot of generals uh, had to flee the country. So what used to be a residential neighborhood became an empty neighborhood. Right. And what replaced them were members of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. Yeah. Right. So what used to be a kind of a normal residential neighborhood yeah. became a war zone, uh, mainly by militias, but also the U.S. Army was also close by, so there was a lot of clashes. And, um, and then 
uh, as the time was growing, I said, how does that look like in the practice? There's dead bodies on the streets. There are mortars and rockets flying from neighborhood to neighborhood. Um, so that was kind of the life pretty much uh, of like 2004, five, six, seven. Um, my crazy me, um, it was, okay, why don't people get along uh, uh, feeling? of yeah. like, wh- There's all this sectarian warfare. There are why is people- everybody fighting? Why can't everyone just get along? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, as a result of just this simple message, um, I started, ended up being on death lists and, and death threats and, and all of that. So then I had to leave Iraq in 2009. Yeah. And I flew to Lebanon. Uh, and then there was another war happening in Lebanon, so I had to flee Lebanon. Uh, and then I went to Malaysia, which is close enough uh, to, to where you are. And I lived there and I applied for refugee status. And then I arrived to the United States in 2013. Wow. Um, and here I am. I, I, as of uh, six months ago, I became a US citizen. So wow, congratulations. So, um, this is now my new home. And you've set up this incredible organization. Yes, Ideas Beyond Borders. Yeah. And that is, so that is in, in, um, in this, I mean, when I landed in America, I was like, hey, what the hell is this? Yeah. Uh, it's a new country, new, English is the first language. Uh, there's a lot of adaptation need to happen. So the first few months, I was just really trying to understand what's going on. And then there's actually an incredible story happened. Um, I made a post on Facebook saying, what is the best city to celebrate the 4th of July? I'm a new immigrant. I would love to see the best fireworks, really. And there was a family in, in Virginia, in D.C. area, who were like, well, D.C. is the place. And then I get a call. Does your name on Facebook match your, your name and ID? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. And they're like, okay, we're going to fly you a ticket and you're going to stay with us wow. to celebrate the 4th of July in our house. And I was like, this is too good to be true. So I got the ticket, United Airlines, flying from Houston, Texas, where I was shuttle to, to DC. And I called the airline, I was like, does this? They're like, yes, Mr. Motar, yeah, you have it, look, for real? Um, then I, I was like, well, what is there to lose? I went and took the flight. And that, that meeting was actually a life-changing experience. Because this is like a family that I had no idea they exist. And then they're like, we believe in you, we believe in your mission, we believe in, in, in who you are and all of that. And then actually I moved there. So after a few months, I actually lived with them. Wow. Uh, for, for almost a year. Okay. And they were like, here, we are here to support you because my family was still in Iraq at the time. And they're like, we've always wanted to help people and you seem like to be the right candidate of the person you want to help. And we have a daughter that studies in New Mexico and we have a two bedroom house. So might as well use the other room. And uh, so that's kind of the, the second chapter of America. Like the first chapter, I was like, what's going on here? Yeah. And then, then this family came into my life. And then I started getting more into work. And, and, and uh, What was your work at that time? So um, there was a project started by Google yeah. uh, called movements.org. And that's how I actually started. So they were looking for, they were just, so the, kind of the mission of, the, of that program was called the Match.com for Human Rights. Wow. <laughs> Which is a very interesting platform that, let's say if you are a women's rights activist in Iraq, want media coverage, right. and you are a journalist who covers women's rights in Iraq, we do a match between the request and the offer. Wow. Um, so they were like, okay, you seem to be the right candidate, you know a lot of people, you, you're, you're, you, you believe in the mission, all of that. So that actually was my first full-time job in, in, in the US. 
which is pretty good start for many of the yeah um, and then so as I was in that kind of uh, phase of life I was giving talks around the country I was introduced and these talks like what, what were you because you talked about the family they were inspired by your mission when you went and stayed with them like at this point you had started to solidify what you wanted to do yes and what did that look like what was the I mean, it's work in progress. I mean, right. there's always uh, time to solidify the, the mission yeah. uh, better. But generally, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, when I was growing up, I, as somebody who grew up in, in, in English, my, my parents were able to taught me English since I was young, is that I've always felt privileged that I had more access to knowledge than everyone around me. Yeah. And, and I mean, that is verified by statistics and facts that there are more books translated to Spanish in one year than Arabic in 1,000 years. Wow. So imagine most of the world knowledge on the mm. internet or in, in print yeah. is actually not available in Arabic. So I've always had this um, belief that, the, I, I mean, I do believe that access to knowledge is, is a human right. And the fact that many people who were around me did not have any access to most of what we know in the world uh, has constantly motivated me to to make knowledge accessible to people. Right. So that's kind of been ha kind of the drive that I've... Uh, Which is the drive behind Ideas Beyond Borders. Ideas Borders and also like most of the work I had before is that I want to help people know more about the world. So is Ideas Beyond Borders really making knowledge and information available into areas that perhaps it wouldn't normally be available because of the, the, the language barrier? Exactly. So wow. that is that is the so the mission is making that accessible accessible. Wow. So uh, And so are you penetrating schools and universities? How does that look? Like what is the model, what does the model look like? So it's divided into three kind of sections. Uh, number one section is books. So these are people who translate just books which is a 12 months project. Yeah. Uh, and also we create sum summary videos of the books. Okay. So that way those who don't have the, not necessarily the ability to read, but the kind of the, the, the uh, energy to read, they will just watch Attention a video. Span. Attention yeah. span. They watch a video that tells them most of the book is about. And that is where really a big uh, like fraction of our money goes to. But also at the same time, we have a team of 120 people who are all across the Arab world who translate Arabic Wikipedia articles. Wow. So most of, again, because of the, the lack of, uh, of content, Arabic Wikipedia was pretty much empty before we started. Like right. so most of what you see in English Wikipedia is not available in Arabic Wikipedia. And, 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 and talk about, I mean, constant inspiration, because in, in a work that is in a constant tension and, and, and war and stuff, even if you live in a safe area, you also need to have a constant inspiration to continue doing what you're doing. And these are the people who constantly give me inspiration. I mean, some of them, not, not some of them, actually all of them live in war zones. And in some cases it's like, somebody tells me, well, my house was blown up, I couldn't finish the article. Wow. And at the same yeah. time, they find the energy. A little bit different to someone saying, oh, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so like, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. And at the same time, wow. they go next week and actually do the work. So this is like the type of people that I constantly work with. Yeah. Are, are, people with constant dedication. And, and so you're impacting people through that information by obviously creating a lot more opportunities, not just at a professional level, but also I'm gonna assume at an entrepreneurial level yes, as well. Yes, exactly. So many of these people are, 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 because of working with us, they're also being connected to international institutions and, and connected kind of to the globe yeah. while they're living in, in, in the war zone. So, so is, what are some of the impacts that you've seen as a result of the information distribution? Uh, 
Amazing. Uh, I mean, one of the th things is like what I what I really love is that at the beginning of the startup, as an idea, I was like, okay, this is this needs to be done and let me do it. And then the demand has been huge. So, I mean, just the Wikipedia articles received up to like 18 million views yeah. of the stuff that we have translated. And the demand, and, and, and on a personal level, these translators are, I mean, many of them, there's a lot of issues of unemployment and, yeah. and, and many of them now are having full-time salary with us and, and they're really living in a way mm -hmm. a much better life than they used to. And now they feel inspired to be like, oh, I have ideas. I also want to implement and start a new business. And I've seen you as somebody who grew up like us to actually build that. Maybe I can build that too. Now it actually, actually gave me inspiration for me to do it. And this is actually constant messages and emails I get from many of these translators. Um, they're like, okay, it seems like, uh, I mean, in a way it's like kind of a trickle effect is that I, 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 I was inspired and started this and now I'm inspiring them to start their own businesses and, and, uh, and that's, that's pretty amazing. And they do like a lot of, the, they have, as of now, roughly like 8 million or 9 million, art, uh, sorry, uh, words have been translated by them. They're like a machine of, wow. of constant. Uh, Over what period of time? Over two years. Over two years. So, so wow. IBB is about three years old. Okay. Um, it's still a new baby in a way. Yeah. But, uh, and the third, so that's, that's, that's also a lot of work there. And the third one is the universities. Right. So um, long story short, there's, there's this, uh, another inspirational individual. Is, his name is Amin. And he reached out to me and he's heard about us doing Wikipedia and everything. And um, so, so ISIS was actually going to take over his town. And he knew that, he kind of predicted that, he saw the news and, and, and he was like, okay, this is, we have, I have to do something. So he bought a generator and connected it to his computer and he downloaded all of Wikipedia. And when ISIS actually took over his town, he was printing these articles and giving it to his students to kind of keep them reading and, 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 and not to lose the momentum of education. They yeah. wanted to keep them... And I was like, wow, like this is, this is really happening. And he's like, well, I, I, now my university is destroyed, but it's now being rebuilt. How about I try to get some of my students who I used to nurture as all of that were happening to actually become translators for you? I was like, that sounds like an incredible idea. Wow, how many students do you got? So there are 10. Oh. And then... The news spread, we opened up in that university, then other universities are reaching out. Wow. Like, oh, you heard you're doing work in the University of Mosul, we're doing, we're in, in other provinces. And now we expanded actually to, to six universities, and we have four potential actually joining us. So yeah. by the, pretty much mid-year, we're going to be end up in 10 universities, and, and every, every university will have 10 students. That's um, amazing. And so kind of like, also another trickle effect, because of, of this guy, um, I was like, wow, like now we have to probably expand to the university market and, and that's kind of a more institutional um, work. So yes, it's been a kind of an, an, a constant learning experience. I mean, you're, you're familiar a lot with the business yeah. world and it's... Uh, and it's a tough gig, you know, especially in the... Because I'm going to assume you're not for profit. We're not for profit, yeah. yeah. And, you know, especially in that space, that can be challenging because like, that, that space is often driven by you know, very philanthropic-minded individuals, but not necessarily very entrepreneurially-minded individuals. So I'm curious as to how did you commercialize this in a way that enabled you to either, you know, get access to funds or raise funds or create funds in order to fund what it is that you do? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, I mean, the way I, I say it is like with business is that the, the, you're selling the product to the individual and the individual is buying the product. Yeah. While in nonprofits is the money is coming not from the consumer. Yeah. So in a way, I have to convince other people that this is important yeah. to the consumer. And this is a, it's, it's an ongoing learning experience. That what really helps is that in this age of social media, um, I'm able to reach more, far more people than, than before. I mean, I was, it's not because of a lot of things happening in the United States and there is a lot of political gridlock in a way, stories like mine don't get as much coverage. Mm. And I was able to utilize social media to the maximum. I, mean, I really abused the system yep. in a way and kind of like telling people about these stories of these people, constantly sharing the issue and the problem why it needs to be solved. And then start people, start people start popping up. It's like, oh, I want to help. I, I run a small business, but I can use you as your like kind of the side income that I can give to you. And we were, I mean, as of now, we're pretty successful. I mean, we, we have raised, we raised almost one million a year. Wow, that's uh, US dollars. And how do you it, go about doing that? It's from from about like now. I mean, I on my Facebook page, I have about three hundred and fifty thousand followers. And that is where pretty much most of the income comes from. That's from the people who follow donations. These, yeah, from yeah. donations. And for those who are in the U.S., they can get a tax deduction. Not that necessarily that's the motive, but but uh, it's it's kind of a financial motive for why people give money as well. Yeah. And many people feel like is that these are things that I mean, there's when people think of the Middle East, they generally think of war and conflict, and they. They really haven't seen much change. Is that the, like the, there are all these wars and conflict happening, but there's hardly any good story, and they see, well, seems like IBB is actually the good story. Is that there is something's happening on the ground that might change things for the better. Yeah. And for for the Middle East, I mean, I, I sometimes joke about this. I, I say. The Middle East is the opposite of Las Vegas. What happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right. so in a way, um, yes, many people might think of it as a far region. That's a 10-hour flight. Why would I be concerned about there? But for example, for Europe, it's, it's just across the Mediterranean. Yeah. And I mean, the U.S. is pretty lucky in a way that, that it's, it's surrounded by oceans, that the, many of the conflicts in the Middle East doesn't affect it. But at the same time, the U.S. is also involved internationally. So So... The, the, the other businesses and commercial and even even lives of many people who live in the Middle East of, of American origin are also threatened. So there is a lot of interest in the Middle East in general because of kind of the, the, the conflicts that arise there have, a, have, a, have an effect. And so that's kind of from the geopolitical side. But at the same time, um, there is, a, I mean, just like the story of the people who really hosted me in their house, there is, there's a lot of energy and kind of positive energy of people really wanting to help mm. and they see this as a, a good cause that we're now not changing just this generation but this knowledge I mean what happens at the internet actually yeah. also doesn't leave the internet it yeah. just stays in the internet and people will will be able to in, through generations will be able to read this content and hopefully be inspired and do more great things yeah you know, it's, it's interesting because I know how I've got a lot of clients that are in the in the charity space and it can be very difficult oftentimes to create a value proposition 
getting someone to donate. So the fact that you're generating a million dollars in revenue every year, congratulations for that. But I think you know one of the challenges that people have when it comes to donating for everything is being able to relate to the cause. Yes. Um, and I think you're right. Like with the Middle East, it's typically one of those places that everybody associates with conflict. But normally, from a disassociated perspective, you know, they normally see it like as a headline on Fox, uh, or you know, as a, a newspaper article. And it's not until they really sometimes hear the stories of the individuals who have lived there that they really go, "Oh shit! Wow!" Like they can really connect with the message. So I'm curious, like your journey. Like I know we skipped over it pretty quickly yeah. to get to IBB and. You know, Ideas Beyond Borders is, is an incredible organisation where you're giving access to you know, an enormous amount of information to people who wouldn't normally get it, which is going to affect obviously everything from political, geopolitical, Dysfunction, education, yeah. professional, entrepreneurial. Um, but I'm, I'm super curious as to how did we get there? Because your journey is essentially what created this outcome. So you were born in Babylon. Yes which is a historical city, like by all accounts. Yeah. Um, and so Babylon, when you were born there, was quite a small town? Uh, yes, it's, it's more like a suburb of the big city. Right, okay. Um, and it's, it's about one hour south of Baghdad. Yeah. And I mean, it's Iraq, and now I live in the United States. Iraq is smaller, m m I mean, I think it's half the size of Texas. It's, yeah, it's right. A, it's generally a small country. So, uh, so that's, that's when I was born in a um, pretty small house. Um, I mean, it was kind of a district with normal And streets. you lived there to what age? I lived there up to, up to age nine. And what were your parents doing while you were living there? So my dad was, was uh, practicing medical profession. Okay. Uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon. Right. And uh, he but was... he had studied in London, had he? He studied in Edinburgh, yeah. He studied yeah, right. in the UK. And my mom, at the time I was growing up, was, was a housewife, even though okay. she studied law. And, and, uh, but she, there were a lot of kids. So, I mean, I, I'm one out of five. Wow. So that was, uh, for her, uh, it's a triple full-time job. That's like, yeah, <laughs> that's five full-time jobs. I've, um, I've got a six-year-old boy as, as a single parent. That's like five full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, and she, I mean, she, look, I mean, were you surrounded by family? Like, were you brought up by the, the village, so to speak? It's, so it, it was, um, I mean, we had a very good relationship with our neighbors. And okay. there were times in which my mom just drops me at the neighbor house. And right. then I used to play with the kids there. And so especially when they had a lot of working moms also was in the neighborhood. And whatever was the holiday, you put the kid over there and then the other woman take a holiday. So another way to take care of the other kids. So we used to kind of be in a close community in a way, like kind of, there was this sense of comfort is that there was always somebody out there to take care of you. And, and, and uh, which did not happen when you move kind of to the bigger city, which, which we did. And also my, my relatives, and most of them live in Babylon as well. Okay. So my cousins and my uncles, and, and so there was kind of more extended family. A lot of family. family. Um, and it was quite a peaceful time for you? I mean, yeah, very peaceful. Okay. And um, by comparison to actually the other stages. And then you moved into Baghdad at the age of nine. Yeah, and then the war happened at the age of 12. So, right. so, uh, but when you moved to Baghdad, you moved into an area, I'm going to assume because of your parents' stature, your dad was a, working a higher working class man? Middle, yeah, middle, middle class, class, yeah. And so as a result, you were living in areas where you were surrounded by a lot of uh, Saddam Hussein's higher brass, top end brass. Or their children, because these are the ones who I used to go to elementary school. Of course, uh, right. And they were, yes, they were from the um, higher upper middle class, if yep. not more than upper middle class. Yeah, right. And, uh, and military. And yes, all of them had military parents. Right, And okay. uh, in a way that, so they were, I mean, in a dictatorship, they were also 
it, it kind of trickles down to kids. Is that it, you see that even if it's a child, but he's all men of them filled with ego and and they're and belong to this family and and right. uh, and so I, I was in a way kind of the the kid that they used to beat up. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, so yeah. you got bullied a lot as a kid, did you? Or I mean, once I, you I, moved to Baghdad? Well, when I started moving to Baghdad, I mean there were some of these kids who were uh, kind of aggressive. And one of them, I mean, he used to like stand by the door and whatever, like if my mom makes me a sandwich or anything and he comes and beat me up, takes a sandwich and, 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 he, and I was one of his clients. He had like multiple clients that he used to beat up and, oh, <laughs> and get lunches. Yeah, and get lunches wow. or, or kind of intimidation. Like he yeah. was in constant. So th- there were like some of these kids around yeah. uh, who like... Yeah, by age 10 and 11, they were like already amazingly aggressive and, and violent. And, and I was kind of like this simple kid from small city uh, or small town coming to this kind of very aggressive environment. And so was that uh, quite a, do you remember that as being between the ages of nine and were you 11 when the invasion occurred? Uh, 12. 12? Yeah. Do you remember that being of stark contrast to going to yourself like, oh my God, this is a whole new environment and starting having maybe emotions and feelings of fear that you hadn't had before? I mean, the, the, I was in a constant uh, feel of uh, like kind of being threatened by these bigger yeah, right. guys. Yeah. And it was, there were days in which like there was constant discomfort. Yeah. But uh, in a way, it's like you, you start being creative and I start making friendships with other big guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I was like, I cannot defeat these big guys. Yeah. It's, it's a lost cause. But, but he can, and but, but maybe if I become friends with him, he'll... <laughs> but if, yeah, so if I figure out a way in which I can organize a coalition, <laughs> um, and uh, this coalition will be able to be my, my defense mechanism. Yeah, right. And uh, so in a way, that, so that was kind of the first things that came to mind, is that, okay, now I'm being beaten up, let me try to figure out other did ways. Did that work? It did work. Yeah, nice. Um, and, and, and so in a way, it's like... Other than getting beaten up and giving the sandwich to that guy, I had to give the sandwich to my yeah, friend. But defending. you just didn't get beaten up. Yeah, but at least I didn't get beaten up. <laughs> so, so I still lost the sandwich. Yeah. The sandwich is gone. Yeah. But, but, but you the, kept your face. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. at least I kept my sanity and, and my okay. physical love. Uh, and, and so do you remember where you were? Because, you know, obviously at the age of 12, that, that's a very impressionable age. You know, that's when we're absorbing so much. We're just about to enter into puberty or sometimes we are. Um, but I'm curious for you, do you remember where you were when, the invas- when you knew the invasion was starting, when it was, when it was occurring? I, I know it very well. Okay. So our house in Baghdad was on the highway. Okay. And that is the highway where the U.S. tanks came and, and, and rolled, in. rolled in to Baghdad from. Right. So I'd, it was kind of a very interesting feeling in, in, in which on the local news, we only had local news, and then they were telling us is that the U.S. Army is defeated and they're still in the south part of Iraq and, and everything is okay and, and we won the war and everything. And then wake up in a usual morning and then the U.S. tanks just rolled in in front of the house. And we were watching from the, from the glass. We're like, and, and then actually they fired a bullet on us because they thought that we were like an army or something. So we started hiding. We started hiding downstairs. And my elementary school became a base for the Iraqi army. So wow. my elementary school was actually close to our house. Okay. And so for like three, four days, it is between rockets from the tanks to the school and there's a f- fight back. And so the house was constantly shaking. And also like we hear 
like the glass is being breaking and, and uh, like we can hear like some bullets are being fired at our house and there were sometimes some of the Iraqi soldiers were jumping from a house to a house uh, to fire at the US Army. Yeah. And then one of my friend's brothers who was an officer in the army started knock, like, start knocking and screaming at our door. And he took off all his military clothing and he's like, please hide me. I, I, I don't want like the Americans to kill me. And he just like came to our house and stayed with us. Wow. Because he was, I mean, there was a compulsory military service. I mean, the guy had yeah. no will really to fight in the army, but he just um, was forced to. And, and he came and rolled to our house, started hiding with us. You're 12 years old. Like, I know you grew up in the Middle East, but had you experienced this kind of conflict before? Like, you'd heard about it, I'm going to assume? My, my parents have. Right. Um, I mean, f my dad was born in 1947, so, sorry, 1945, and my mom in 1947, and he pretty much lived a war after war. I mean, there, there was this, yeah. I think, statistic that if you were born in the, I think, the 50s or the 60s, you pretty much have lived five wars in your life. So when this was all going down, were you looking at dad and he's just like, you know, yeah, oh, it's okay, you know, I've been through this before. And you're like, but dad, there's like <laughs> fucking bombs and bullets. It's like, yeah, I mean, was he me, quite cool about it or was he, what, do you remember his response? I mean, his response was, yeah, trying to keep us all calm down. Okay, um, so you're 12, you got bullets coming in your house, you know, tanks rolling in, you know, rockets going between your school and the American forces, your house is shaking all day long. What's going on in your head? I mean, like really, seriously, I, I'm curious, like you're a 12 year old boy, you know, you're growing up, like what's going on in your mind? Like, how do you rationalize this reality? It's, I mean, I, th I think for my case is I start rationalizing it later because right. in, in this situation is that you're pretty much living the moment because yeah. you really have no perception. There's no past, there's no future, so the, I, I just need to survive. Um, and and in, in, in a way it was, there was like some days of humor like when somebody's like oh i feel i want to use the restroom and then everybody's like laughing is like well all this war is happening like somebody wants to use the restroom <laughs> and between uh, between of us is like we uh so in a way that i was in much thinking i was yeah. i was really living in like living in the present moment to the maximum possibility and and really in a way appreciate what i have right now because i don't know if i'm gonna lose it or not so, so you were actually experiencing gratitude. And bonding. Wow. And, and uh, because it's like, this is a moment, I mean, I didn't know what death was in a way. I didn't like yeah. think of it in, in that way, but, but I knew that people disappear after that. Uh, so there was this constant feeling of like, I have to appreciate what I have right now and really feel bonding to everyone around me. And so that, that was kind of, there was a feeling, it was that feeling. And, oh, and, and of course the feeling of fear. But that feeling, the, the bonding feeling was actually took over the feeling of fear. Um, even though all of that was happening, it, it's just that, um, we, I mean, I think I can say the same for my family. I mean, we're pretty much just focused on the moment and really bonding with each other and, and appreciating the fact that all of us are still alive mm. and really living that minute by minute, expecting that the future will be better. Yeah. And uh, it did, I mean, it, in a way, like after the war ended, which I mean, from our end, that was kind of the most, because um, that's where the tanks came in and then the tanks moved to the center of Baghdad and then the war ended. Um, but really not ended, it's just at the time we thought it ended. And so 
after a few days, things start calming down a bit. So, so then like we, we kind of were able to breathe again. Okay. And, and really, f like, really look around. The, the and so, how long did that period of time go on for, where well, you were like, where there was all that chaos before the other militias and ISIS started to move in? So, yeah, that didn't last long. Okay. <laughs> um, just a few days after the war, there was kind of looting, and there were a lot of people like right. stealing from schools and stealing from museums, and so that was like the day after. Like, yeah. if, uh, I mean the. The day of the fall of Saddam Hussein is April 9th, 2003. And by April 10th, people, there were still people on the streets stealing stuff. And uh, so the kind of the chaos immediately was, was emerging. But my neighborhood started being impacted by 2004, 2005. That's where many of the generals and many of the people started leaving the houses. Okay. So they stayed for a period? They stayed for like the first few months and right. then many of them started leaving. Okay. So that's where kind of the transition happened in between families and kids into militias. That's so... So it went from being a normal, respectable, what you'd call a stereotypical urban neighborhood? Yeah, to, to a then, residential neighborhood, yes. Yeah, to um, then within a period of months being occupied by dangerous rocket machine gun wielding militia. From all over, actually in, in a way, from all over the world. Uh, there were some people who spoke Afghan and some people spoke Chechen. There were a lot of, so wow. it was kind of the Times Square of terrorism. <laughs> wow. In terms of many of the people who were actually international like criminals, who were not just locals, but rather- International opportunists. Yes, who, yeah. uh, who some of them came to Iraq before the war, but some of them came after. And so kind of the scene of the neighborhood start changing very rapidly from usual kids playing on the street, playing soccer into well, there's a sniper rifle guy with a, with a hidden face in that house and there is somebody putting a bomb in the road and there is somebody having a mortar rifle, uh, uh, rocket firing. So like the scene immediately changed and also the, the stores started closing, many of them started closing. There was a sometimes shortage of, of, of stuff in the stores. Um, and my, so that's when I started moving to high school and they blew up the police station in front of the high school like on the first week. Wow. So, so my high school neighborhood was as dangerous if not more dangerous than my residential neighborhood. Um, and the police station was across the road. Well, it was across the road. Yeah. And it, does that affect you as a 12 year old when you go into high school and the police station, like the people are supposed to make you feel safe, like they get bombed? It's, yeah, so that's, that's it's... Uh, did you keep going to school during this period? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and in a way, because there were times in which the, the teachers were in a way like forcing us to come, even though we had to walk on dead bodies to go to school. No. So there were wow. times like when the militias were fighting, they just throw the dead bodies in the middle of the road. Right. And then the bus that we used to take just stops by the dead bodies because it cannot cross. So then we had to leave the bus, the school bus, and then have to walk over these dead bodies in some days to actually go to school. Yeah. And then the teachers were and like- how old are you this, like 13? So I was, I was going up, that was like 13, 14, yeah. 15. Um, so I think it's important to pause for a moment and have everyone at home, like literally stop for a moment and just wonder what that would be like. You know, either for themselves, you know, being dropped to school, because most of us, you know, who probably listen to this audience have been used to being dropped to school or dropping our kids to school. But it kind of adds a whole nother dimension when you think about you know, either you're being, you're a child and you're being dropped to school or you're dropping your kids to school and the only way they can enter the school is they've got to walk past, what, I'm talking five, ten, yeah. how many bodies would you... 
Yeah, sometimes more yeah. and sometimes less. It depends on how active the day was in yeah, terms wow. of, the, of, the, of the warfare. Yeah, that's a reality check. For and, and you guys kept going to school. Yes. Because what's interesting in many respects, some people say, "Well, no, I'd never let my child do that." But it's almost like, well, there's almost a there's a level of um, oh god, I wouldn't even I wouldn't say rebellion, but a level of well, no, I'm going to get educated no matter what. Like I am not going to let. And as extreme as this sounds, a dead body on the road prevent me from getting an education. What was the motivation to keep going to school when you had to walk across a dozen dead bodies? The, the positive one is like seeing my friends again. <laughs> yeah. So there was that uh, feeling is that I, you keep going because there is something good at the end. You're going to yeah. see your friends, you're going to play some soccer, play some billiards, joke with each other. Uh, so that's kind of the positive one. And, and really it's like we, as you said, is that you have to do it. And also, when you grow up, when you grow up in war, you think this is the normal. Yeah. So in a yeah. way, I mean, I, I talk about a sudden realization. Actually, just just uh, as of a year ago, I was really sitting at my friend's patio and we were chatting and everything. And, and out of a sudden, it came to me that I'd been safe for a while. Like it just kind of uh, is that I, I'm not. It's been few years that I can go from my apartment to work and and I'm zero worried about like conflict and did it take you a while it, it did take a because i would assume there might have been some residue trauma residue ptsd or something because you don't i'm going to assume there was something there and so when you came here it was like do i still have to be on guard so at, at the beginning when i moved here i was in, in this constant stage of, of constantly feeling on guard yeah but then after a while it's it's i start quote unquote That's, integrating at least mentally yeah, integrating yeah yeah and it came to me as like Wow, this safety thing is cool. <laughs> like wow. this feel, like this ability to not worry and look around all the time is actually there's something great to it. Uh, so, so I started appreciating that so much. So there, like, I, and like to make my mindset back there is that it's constant feeling you have to be worried about everything, and then as the conflict rises the level of trust between individuals are declining. Mm. So, because some of my high school friends, started, some of them started becoming sympathetic to terrorist groups. So it went from becoming, in some respects, a bonding experience for some of you, yes. to then fractional. To then fractional. Yeah. So then you are becoming, uh, start becoming very worried about what I say. Because, oh. oh, maybe this person is hearing, even though he's a colleague in my high school, he might be affiliated with a terrorist group, or he might... Wow. be part of the warfare so it is so in a way it's like you start trusting your best friends more because each one of yeah. us are sharing secrets with each other yeah but at the same time you there is this constant f friction between you and pretty much everybody around you that's a whole nother evolution of schooling like because most people their challenge at school is a bully <laughs> you know if they're lucky maybe there's a little school gang but it's very rare that you'd have someone in your school that is like or multiple in school that are members of international terrorist organizations uh, yeah, yeah, are sympathetic to this. Or course. sympathetic, yeah. I should say. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that is kind of the, the, the constant feeling, the negative feeling is that you're very worried about mm. um, your surroundings. You're very, very worried about the people. Um, and, but that is, after you live in it for a while, um, it, it just becomes a normal. So in a way, there is nothing you can compare it to. Like, you don't know what in a way a good life looks like. I mean, nah. you don't know what a safe, what a safety looks like. You imagine this is the, 
the what life is and then you just live day by day it's monday through friday and um in a way there's a, there's a kind of an inspirational thing for example like when there's a terrorist attack happening in the neighborhood or in a crowded neighborhood and there's let's say 30 people killed and there is glasses are shattered and, and and sometimes within hours you see like people fixing the glass of the restaurant or the store cleaning up the street because they're only like uh, bombs create a hole in the street and they see people like filling it up and then within sometimes hours just life continues and, and the bus is back to work and and people just shake it off people just shake it off and in a way that I mean, I, I think I was sometimes as negative because people are not reflecting as much as how can we yeah. really stop this from happening again. But at the same time, it's inspirational because the will to live, the will to actually to be prosperous and to bring food to your kids and to serve others is still constantly happening. So yeah. with all of the conflict and the war, in a way, life was still working, yeah. uh, at least functional in terms yeah. of the basics, the, the bus might work even though the bus driver might be killed then his cousin is now the bus driver it sounds like extremely high functioning dysfunction <laughs> yeah <laughs> one way of putting it yeah, yeah. it's 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 uh yeah so you're from like chaos the, there was like some order in yeah. the middle of that chaos well, and that's what's so interesting because you can't have chaos without order you know you can't have order without chaos so it's amazing to be able to witness that in hindsight and see it playing out that's there's almost a level of beauty or divine um perspective to be able to see the order and the chaos at the same at the same time I, so I didn't think of it as divine back then but but of course definitely uh of course and but it's, it's just, i mean the positive thing is like in a way when i'm was surrounded by that environment i was also able to keep the will to live i mean i was yeah. keep the so you motivated yeah it, it, it very i mean in some cases very motivated i mean there's always um in, in a way, it also becomes addictive. <laughs> it's like it's like even even now, like when I like with the people I work with and I hear some of their inspirational stories, it's like I want to be constantly motivated by this kind of willful people who are trying to create great changes. Mm. So in a way, it's like I'm addicted to inspiration in a way. That is so um, cool. Because it's it's uh, and especially like with 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 the many of the folks I, I work with now is like. They have every reason to be desperate. They have every reason to give up, but they keep going. Mm. And I think that that energy, despite all of the chaos, uh, is is pretty, pretty inspirational. And so you're at thirteen, fourteen. What happens next? Things start to deteriorate more. Well, worse. Yeah. So there was a very significant event uh, happened in Iraq when uh, there was a mosque called the Askari Mosque, uh, which is considered like one of the most um, amazing symbols of Shia Islam and was blown up by Al-Qaeda. And then as a result, the war started becoming more regional. So Iran and many of its militias started becoming involved. And then there was more, like that kind of put sectarian warfare multiplied by 100. So there was forced deportation of people who are from a sect, they had to move to a different one. And this is when I had to develop a fake ID. Right. So I had an ID that had a different last name it's because you can know someone's sect from the last name they yeah. belong to. So one had a last name that was Sunni and one had a last name that was Shia. So if I go around different neighborhoods in, the, in the Baghdad, I had to learn, even me and my friends were learning, that was like 13, 14, learning how to 
say it with confidence that you belong to that sect. Yeah. So in a way, we were like training with each other, playing with each other, and then we figured out that you get stopped by a militia yeah. of, of X, you know what to say. And um, so... And that happened a lot? Yes. It, I mean, for me, it wasn't a lot because my neighborhood started becoming on one sect because the segregation has increased a lot. So we really had to stay within very homogeneous sect. Yeah. Um, it, it, it happens more in, in, in the neighborhood that were close to us. Right. And that's where these neighborhoods were fire rockets in my neighborhood, and then my neighborhood was fire rockets at their neighborhood. Right. So in a way, these areas were not able to talk to each other in the first place. Wow. So I didn't really use my fake ID that much. Yeah. Even though I... Actually, I mean, my fake ID is the one that kept me in my neighborhood. Right. But I, so th- my fake ID became my ID. <laughs> right. um, and I stopped using my real ID. Yeah. So the fake became the, the normal because my, my, my neighborhood has become, with Al-Qaeda, it was more of a Sunni background, Sunni uh, influence, mine from Shia background. So my, the, my fake ID became the normal. Right. So in a way, it's like you have to adopt a, a personality of a spy of some sort, is that you, you have to believe that you are somebody of a last name. Yes. So, and you become the embodiment of it in a way. And to survive. To survive. Yeah. So, so, as I was growing up, actually, like, in a way, it's time to convince myself that I actually belong to that sect and have that last name. And it worked in a way really well. I mean, the fact that I'm still alive showed that it worked, is that I was able to walk around in this neighborhood. And even yeah. though... Um, like if Al-Qaeda knew who I really am, or at least knew what my last name is, my real last name is, I would be dead. But uh, I was able to say it with complete confidence and... and, and, uh, But you say you were pretty lucky, you know, you mainly stuck to your own um, neighborhood, but um, from memory from some of the notes that I did scan, you were either kidnapped or attempted to be kidnapped? So, yes. A number of of times. Three times. Three times. Um, And I would say that is... That is one the the most memorable one. Uh, the most memorable kidnapping. The, uh, because I've never had a, a guest say that before. <laughs> um, I, I hope I'm not the first one, but but uh, you are the first one <laughs> and probably the last. But I'm so curious, please. Um, so, w- which is so I was moving in time. So that was when I was 17, okay. and so I was walking in the neighborhood, and I think th- there was the word spread that I had a fake ID. Right. And so Al-Qaeda's car stopped actually very close to me. And there was a guy at the back of the car, because they're mostly covered face, they, yeah. they covered the face, and like, get him. So there was a guy coming outside the car to actually get me. And then a US Humvee just came in. Oh. And the guy shouting to other guys, like, come, come, the US Army's arrived. So they came to the car and they left. And... The guy was faster than me. The guy who was actually trying to kidnap me was much faster than me. Right. And so I was most likely like you were I, would, get I, I was getting kidnapped. And that was uh, a moment in a way it's like I felt absolute weakness because I was amazingly vulnerable. That was the time in which really like if, the, if that Humvee didn't show up or if um, is that I would be really defeated. I would be losing in that s- in scenario. You'd possibly be dead. I Most likely. Think. Yeah. Um, and so in a way I felt amazing uh, like weakness and vulnerability. 
But at the same time, I felt that I need to make a decision that I need to be now more in control of my life. Oh, wow. So in, in that situation, there were like two feelings happening at the same time. Mm. One that is amazing weakness of like, I, uh, like how weak I was. I, I was deep vulnerability, deep, like deep vulnerability and that this guy was faster than me. I was, I was um, and, 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 and very less powerful. And then that other feeling of like, okay, I have to be in control of my destiny right now. And I think that is, I think as of today is still a significant motive for me to why I started an organization or I I became a kind of entrepreneurial in a way and kind of now I recognize there is a problem and it's my duty to solve it. And I think I have the power to solve it. And if, and if not, I will create the power to solve it. <laughs> so that feeling of uh, when I was 17 year old is, is still a constant motivator even today. And now mm-hmm. that is uh, almost 13 years later. Um, I mean, even when I left Iraq, I was by myself. So I was in, my, my parents were still in Iraq. And so I, I had to do all of the Lebanon, Malaysia stuff all by myself. So I was just me with my bags. And How old? I was 18 when 18. I left the country. Wow. So that even though with all of the kind of the the the, the chaos that I was yeah. surrounded with that that was and still is my constant motivator yeah. is that I have to be in control of my destiny and I have to be able to really use that power to create what lives an, better for others what an unusual blessing like in in every respect you know because most 18 year olds you know, they're ta- if they're taking a year off, they're doing their gap year and traveling the world and backpacking. You had your life in a suitcase and you were just trying to, you know, find somewhere that you could live in and be safe. Yeah, so a different meaning of, <laughs> of backpacking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I know you've got a, a big family. You've got uh, five siblings. Um, but I also know you lost your brother. Yeah, um, so we have four siblings. So we're five. We're, oh, five of yeah. you. Yeah. And uh, how old were you when you lost? So your that was when I was seventeen. Same year. Um, that was so, so. As I said, this was was the time of the absolute conflict. Right. When when things were um, really chaos multiplied by a hundred, and on just I mean, on a usual day, I mean, I I was already worried that something is gonna bad happen to my family. It is like. We cannot be that lucky. Yeah. Uh, we are. We are seven. And had you seen every or every family that you you knew at that point had been touched in some way? Pretty much. Yeah. And I was seeing dead bodies on the streets every day. Yeah. So 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 the the, the constant feeling of conflict and death um, is was like just a daily reality. Yeah. And just on a in in a usual day of of. In Iraq, a usual day, not not in, in the U.S., but uh, militias on the street and everything. And my friend, my sorry, my brother, who was a computer scientist, uh, who also had a startup, really, oh. uh, with some of his friends who also were startup people, were just driving, going to work, and one of these militias just stopped them and they disappeared. All of them. Yeah. Uh, all, I mean, there, there were eight, four survived and. Because they let the first car move, and then the second car was where my brother was, and then the three other friends, and then these guys disappeared. So, 
so I, I wasn't uh, like I know negative some uh, like not not that I trust my instinct, but like I knew something was gonna happen to us to the family to so the yeah. way that when I came home in, from in school, yeah, um, I when I heard the news, I didn't have a shock, and I wasn't really that shocked. I was like, we're seven. There's this constant warfare. Um, I'm I'm hearing that my friends' brothers are being killed, their cousins are being killed. Um, and I was constantly like telling my family, we have to leave the country, it's, this is, uh, and um, it happened. So that's, that's, that is, on my family relations, it really changed the whole uh, atmosphere in my family. It became filled with sadness and grief and, and, uh, I can imagine. and it was like a period of time until we know that he was killed. Like there right. was a, this period of kidnapping and there was this businesses really that, that start popping up in that era in which, okay, if you give me 5,000 uh, Raki Dinar or 50,000, oh, I'm gonna hear news about where your son is right now. And my parents were in this constant uh, bargaining with many of these people who were lying to them. I mean, many of these companies are, are, are uh, are just are frauds. They just utilize this emotions. They know that grieving moms and grieving dads just want to hear some good news. And then they're like, oh, I saw your kid in a prison. If you just give us a few money, I will go talk to him. I might be able to free him from the prison, stuff like that. So That's that was in a way more torturous than actually yeah. even hearing this, the, the, the story that he was killed. Because yeah. it was in this at least for my parents. I actually, I, I, I immediately believed that he was killed. I was yeah. like, I've seen it happening to everyone around me. So I wasn't that optimistic. But my parents were just leeching on to whatever positive news there is that they can hear. And, I, um, and rightly so. I mean, the, the, and they, so there were all these people start popping up. The moment they hear like someone's kid, someone's kid is being kidnapped and and or, or they start calling and like, oh, I heard your story. I, I, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And if you give us some money and, and that stayed for, for more than a year. So the, the thing happened in, in November 2007. Uh, so that was like until like 2009, that was the situation. So your parents were hanging on for that yes. long. Oh, wow, that must have been torturous. Um, and um, so that, so when that was happening, like the whole atmosphere of the house was, uh, is that in a way it's like, my mom is grieving, my dad is grieving, and there is really nothing to say to actually make them feel better, is that they want to see their kid. Yeah. And there is nothing I can offer to, to make it happen. And uh, so, so it is also in a way I feel, feel of powerlessness. It's like I see a problem, but I'm, I'm amazingly incapable of solving it. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it was a daily reality. And like, wake up in the morning, my mom is crying. Wake up next morning, my mom is crying. So there's no, there's really no change. And then maybe in the afternoon she gets a call that some, somebody might, might know where the sun is and maybe she feels a bit of optimism and then the evening comes in and these guys don't call back because they get the money and they don't want to and that's it, that business done for them. Yeah. So then the crying happens again and, yeah. and, and that's kind of the, 
the cycle. The cycle. Mm. Um, and was there any defining moments within that period where, you know, like the attempted kidnapping, where it became an? Ad- I'm going to assume there's fuel in there from this experience. But was there anything that you can pull on that's defining where you're like that that drove part of the mission that you're on today? I mean, I mean, the, the attempted kidnap kidnappings were actually happening in the same era where that so was. All ha- the same yeah, time. so the, so it was all compact all right. in, in the same time frame. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think I think the the, the 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 feelings were all really getting condensed of between absolute powerlessness and yeah. the feel of getting. And then, how did you end up getting? out of the country because it's a year later you're 18 and you're like you're, you're saying to your parents if you don't come I'm going is that how does it so I was like constantly I mean begging and nagging to my parents that I have to leave and after my school so I had to change schools in high school because my school was constantly being targeted by rockets and and bullets and all of that and then I had to convince them that I want to go to a safer neighborhood to finish my high school and they finally agreed and so I told them is that... <laughs> I can just imagine the argument. Um, Dad, I need to go to a new school. But why? I keep getting shot at and there's <laughs> rockets and mortars. Yeah, it's not good enough. It's like, keep going. Because they were like, okay, like, will that make create a big change? I mean, the neighborhood we live in is already unsafe. So like... Wow. We'll, so, um, wow. so then when I changed school, I, I was kind of part of the, the constant nagging is that as soon as I finish my, my high school and get my diploma, I will just leave. Yeah. Um, and then they finally agreed to that because at the beginning it was like, oh, you're, you're a kid. Like, how can you live on yourself and all of that? And I was like, I don't know. I can figure it out. It's better than <laughs> what I'm living currently. Um, and and I, wasn't, I didn't have an issue with the Iraqi government. So I was able to leave through the usual airport. So, I mean, just there were, at the day, there were no checkpoints, no fake checkpoints. So that was... Um, that was a good day, right? And I remember it was it was September 9, thousand nine. That's when I hopped on a plane to leave Iraq. Right. Uh, so one way ticket to Malaysia. No, one ticket to Lebanon. To Lebanon. Oh, that's yes. right, Lebanon. And uh, from Lebanon, the plan was I go to the UK to actually. Um, my sister moved there, and the plan was like if I can move there and then um, continue my education and all of that. And I got accepted in multiple universities, but then because of my passport, I had an Iraqi passport, I was rejected. So I was not allowed to enter the UK. So it happened three times. That's also another business situation. There are, there are, you cannot like apply through the embassy directly. The embassy had these like third parties that you apply from, and on in the interest of the third parties, they would like you to make a like, bad application so you can pay again. So there was no incentive for them to actually, so if, if I made a mistake in which like I forget to put my uh, age or, or they don't like tell you, oh, you've made a mistake. No, they actually leave it. So and that's why you make a mistake and then you pay the application fee again. Wow. So um, that happens. So between, and they don't tell you like amazing refusal. Sometimes like the time is, is two months and three months. So when that was, that was happening and I started taking courses in English, when, 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 um, and then because of the constant refusals, then one of the people at the admissions, actually at the university in Britain, was like, I'm, I'm sorry you're going through this, like we as the university would like to accept you, but this is the laws of the land and all of that. 
there is similar education in Malaysia and seems to be a safer place. And I looked at the visa requirements. You as an Iraqi can go like immediately. You don't actually need to apply for a visa. You can just fly there and then uh, uh, change your visa there. Um, and I was like, cool, let me check. Seems like he's right. And I flew to Malaysia. So I took, I booked the flight from Lebanon and I, with my suitcase. How long in Lebanon? About nine months, nine, about nine, nine months? ten months, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I lived there from September to July 2010. And then into Malaysia, how long yes. were you there? So that was until I get my US acceptance. And I, I stayed, but I also moved around a bit, but Malaysia was my home for about three years. Okay, and what did you do there in order to get by? So I did, I went to university there. Okay. At, at, and they were offering, uh, I studied general sciences, so they were offering classes of biology, physics, chemistry, and critical thinking, which is, which is something that I love. And at the same time, I was also learning courses of web design and digital marketing. And, wow. Um, so I started like, because I, when I moved to Malaysia, I had no idea what's actually the next plan. Like uh, there were many possibilities of moving around. In fact, Australia was on the list because it's close enough. And there were times in which I was considering taking some of these boats that, that go wow. from either Indonesia or Malaysia yeah. that eventually go to Australia. But my uh, dad was amazingly against it. So uh, I, when, also when that was happening, I applied for refugee status in Malaysia. So in Malaysia is considered a third country host. They're not the ones you become refugee at. You become refugee at countries elsewhere. Right. And uh, then I get accepted to come to the United States. So that's, that was, that, that phase of life changed. The, and then it was shortly thereafter you put the post on Facebook. Yes. And, 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 and then the family and then moving with them and then moving, got promoted to move to New York. And when was the official launch date of um, Ideas Beyond Borders? Uh, it's, it's, it's a funny day. It's, it's April 20th. Uh, it's not called Weed Day, but it's, it's April 20th, 2017. Wow. Uh, is when, yeah, 20... 18, 19, yeah, 2018, sorry, April 2018, because it's on this year, in April, is going to be our third year anniversary. Wow. Yeah. And in, in the US, how are you set up? Are you set up as a, as a charity, a not-for-profit? They're called, yeah, non-for-profit, a 501c3. Okay. Um, so at the beginning, it's, it's, it's a very long process. And back to Facebook, um, me and my colleague made a post looking for lawyers. And there was a, a, now a friend, and actually the chairman of the board, who found this post. And I was like, oh, I work in this major law firm called Clear Gottlieb. It's in downtown Manhattan. And uh, I care about what you guys are saying. And how about I get you a deal with my law firm so they can offer you pro bono service? Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, for us, like as a nonprofit to do international operations and stuff like that, it's a very, I mean, I, I don't know law at all. So yeah. it's a very complicated process in terms of how to fill the application. So that is another free service that came oh, in. Oh, wow. Um, also in the, in the uh, social media world. Uh, and then, yeah, then we signed a contract with the law firm. And then the law firm started like doing it uh, one by one. And then um, in the meantime, there was a, something called fiscal sponsor in which you would get until you get tax deductible status. And another friend 
not from Facebook, actually, yeah. that, that friend is that somebody I know, who was like, I'm gonna offer you my nonprofit status until you get yours, so you can give tax deduction to your, oh, wow. to your donors. And uh, yeah, and then things start. So as an organization now, like obviously fundraising is a big part of how you do what you do. Definitely. But apart from funds, is there anything else that you're looking for? Like how else could our community perhaps support you? So th there are many things actually, but there are, there's one thing that I definitely emphasize on, um, yeah. and it's not necessarily financial or, or uh, is that many of the translators that we, that we work with um, need constant emotional support. Wow. The, and, and there are days in which they lose their brothers, and there are days they lose their cousins, and... Or days they lose their house. And there's some, some days they lose their house, yeah. and sometimes their family. Yeah. Um, and even if they don't lose anything, they, they are surrounded by war and conflict. And sometimes a message from somebody living in the US or Australia or Sweden that tells them, was like, oh, I heard about you guys and, and, and what you, you think what you're doing is very important. It's of a great significance to them. Um, we have, like, I mean, I, I, I do that in every time when I, I do speeches and stuff. If I speak at a university, then most of them don't really have income or finance to give. But for that is that this keeps many of the translators how do we communicate that to them? Where do we to go? To us. So okay. if, if, if somebody, if you can send us a three minute video yeah. and send it to IBB, yeah. we have a direct channel that we, a, a Gmail that can send to all the Maddie, translators. We're doing a video. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that is, that is the... And sent to you through the Facebook group? Or? The Facebook group, the email, the website, everything. And the Facebook group is Ideas, Ideas Beyond, Beyond Borders? Yeah, so... Um, I, if you go to Facebook, just search Ideas Beyond Borders, you okay. find it there. The URL, I think, is like I, slash Ideas Borders. Right. And that is, I would say, the main thing I ask. Yeah. Because, honestly, it's like some of the translators, um, they say, like, we don't need the money. Like, for us, this is not, uh, I mean, even though we do pay stipends our translator because we want to incentivize them to, because uh, it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's yeah. ten, 10 hours a day or, um, some of them are like, okay, we are just, if you don't have, because when we first started, we didn't really have much money. We had the program, but we didn't yeah. have much money. And many of them were motivated to do it before we even had the, had the money. They're like, we trust you, we believe in your, wow. we believe in the same mission you are. So when you get the money, you can send it to us. This is not a... Okay, for, I want everyone who's watching this right now, pull out their iPhone, film a video, say thank you to someone you don't even know, okay, who's translating content right now for people. Uh, but for the most part are in you know, war-torn conflict zones who have no access to this information that we actually take for granted. Grab it right now, actually at the end of the podcast, do it. But uh, yeah, Thank and you. also donations, that would also go a long way as donations well. Donations will be wonderful. Yeah. And also the same, um, Ideas Beyond Borders slash donates. Yeah. Um, and uh, we are a US-based uh, nonprofit. Okay, um, I'll kick the donations off. Uh, we'll donate five grand. Uh, oh, thank you. Australian dollars to the donation. So again, if, you, if you've got the money, you don't have the time to do a video, uh, yeah, where can they go to make a donation? Ideas beyond border slash donate. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll hook that up as well. Awesome. Because I'm inspired by what you do, mate. Like, and um, yeah, I have this unusual, um, it's not even an ability, it just happens. Like whenever I'm listening to people, their stories or stories about others, I'm constantly putting myself in their situation. Like, oh, what would that be like? And to hear your story and to look at who you are today. And again, I know this is our first meeting, but I'm, I'm, I would consider myself someone who's very intuitive. 
and you, you've got this beautiful presence, you've got this kind nature, you've got this really loving, generous heart that just wants to help people and considering everything you've been through, I think it's just a testament to who you are, mate. So uh, yeah, congratulations for doing what you do. Thank so you. we can find out more about you by going to the website? Yes, Beyond, uh, Beyond and Borders. also more about the team yep. and, and all the stuff we do, the board, um, yeah, pretty much all of our activities. So if there's one thing you'd like to leave the audience with, what, what would that be? There is a lot of uh, negative stories about the Middle East all the time. Yep. But there is uh, a lot of good stories too. And yeah. there are a lot of good people. Yes. Always ask the question is that how does the life continue over there despite the conflict? And it is continuing because a lot of the work of many brave people who always have the will to do something good for them, for themselves, but also to the people around them. And I think this group of people are not the most represented that mm. you hear about when you think of the Middle East. And I think that uh, if you have the time, obviously read the negative stories, but at the same time, know that there are a lot of heroes out there who really trying to make their, their places to be more prosperous for them, but also for everyone else. It's interesting. I think there's a really solid point there in the fact that even though the war is happening wherever the wars are happening, there is an assemblance, and this is what I've really learned from you, life still has to go on. Not everyone's just staying at home, you know, packed away, protecting themselves, you know, starving out, dying out as a nation or a country or, a, or an ethnic group, that people are carrying on. And I think it's that resilience that you are perhaps giving us a, an insight to that we haven't seen before of your culture and the cultures over there that, uh, yeah, has been... And them keep going. Yeah. yeah, really quite enlightening. So, mate, um, Faisal, I am really honoured to have spent the time with you. And, yeah, I hope this is the first of many chats, but thank you so uh, much so for too. coming on Unstoppable. Thank you so <laughs> much. You got it, mate. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.